0: You are listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hello, I'm Lindsay Morse, the host of Fab
1: Figmentals a podcast that blends history and storytelling to explore the realm of curious creatures, magical monsters, and beautiful beasts. Each week on the show, I'll introduce you to a new legendary creature,
0: and together we'll
1: explore its mythology and lore. Every episode of Fab Figmentals begins with a story, and then we dive into the history behind the myth. The show features stories from folklore, classic fairy tales, and our own original vignettes. And the stories will often be more Brothers Grimm than Mother Goose. Think whimsy with a bit of an edge. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and you'll find the show wherever you get your podcasts. Join me as we set out on an
0: extraordinary exploration into the most fascinating corners of myth. Hi and welcome. As always, I'm Johanna from Vienna, Austria. And I'm Annie from Boston, Massachusetts, and you just heard Lindsay Morse from Fab Figmentals. And this is the first time that we've presented a non-true crime podcast to you at the beginning of one of our episodes, but she really does an amazing job of presenting these very interesting stories and legends that surround all kinds of like mystical creatures, and I know a lot of you are going to be into her podcast, so check it out.
1: Yeah, and it was so funny because she did a shout-out of Fresh Hell podcast on her Arachne episode, (laughs) which... It's kind of fitting, yeah. as we both suffer from arachnophobia. Big time. And I want to be honest, that's one episode I will sit out. Yep. I'm not going to click that. Yeah. One. No,
0: it's literally the only episode I'm going to avoid. And I also laughed really hard at the irony of that.
1: <laughs> one more thing before we start. Don't forget our t-shirt giveaway. You still have one week to join our Facebook group and comment a meme under the pinned post. And we would be so thankful if you would share our content or, you know, if you leave us a rating or a review. But now, let us start with today's story. What do you have for us today, Annie?
0: All right. So today, I've got another really old one for you. This is the story of the Greenbrier ghost. And this is the only case in the United States where a ghost helped to convict a definite uh, spouse abuser and um, multiple murderer. Yep. Sounds like right up our alley then. Yes. Our creepy, poorly lit, deserted alley. There isn't even like an angry cat hissing at you that's how (laughs) grim our alley is welcome all right so this story takes place in west virginia and i did not realize how hard it would be to just say west virginia without following it up with mountain mama But yeah, this area seriously, it's gorgeous. Like most of Appalachia, with like lots of twisty scenic roads. So some of them I know my husband loves. Tale of the Dragon. We have a lot of motorcycle enthusiast friends. But all of Appalachia, it's just a beautiful expanse of land. The Blue Ridge Parkway, the Smoky Mountains, and you know this is all part of Appalachia. So I'm gonna read you a, just a quick snippet of info on the area. This is directly from the Appalachian Regional Commission website, ARC.org So they say, quote The Appalachian region, as defined in ARC's authorizing legislation is a 205,000 square mile region that follows the spine of the Appalachian Mountains from southern New York to northern Mississippi. It includes all of West Virginia and parts of 12 other states. Alabama, Georgia Kentucky, Maryland, Mississippi New York, North Carolina Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia Forty-two percent of the region's population is rural, compared with twenty percent of the national population. The Appalachian region's economy, once highly dependent on mining, forestry, agriculture, chemical industries, and heavy industry, has become more diversified in recent times, and now includes manufacturing and professional service industries. End quote. Little bit of history on just how huge this area is. I think a lot of people are familiar with. Appalachia as being a big mining, especially forestry and mining, coal mining. So our story takes place in the late 1800s when West Virginia was still a fairly new state. It split from Confederate Virginia and remained loyal to the United States during the Civil War, and it became its own state during the war in 1863. The West Virginia state motto is "Mountaineers are always free," and that reflects their feelings on the war to end slavery and also on their own statehood. To quote an article. On History.com by Christopher Klein Quote, the schism that splits the United States in two during the Civil War did the same to Virginia From the state's earliest days, slave-holding plantation owners in the eastern part of Virginia Dominated the state's economy and politics Leaving the self-sufficient farmers who lived in the rugged western counties Where slavery was far less prevalent, feeling ignored Although Virginia joined the Confederacy in April 1861 The western part of the state remained loyal to the Union and began the process of separation End quote. And the men and women of what would become West, by God, Virginia, also referred to themselves as mountaineers before the war and before statehood. These people were just tough, strong, hardworking people, farmers and miners who lived very different lives from those on plantations in eastern Virginia. And just to be clear, because there's always someone who's going to say something, I am not (laughs) saying that everyone in Virginia was a racist who was super psyched for slavery. And I am not saying that everyone in West Virginia was the opposite. It's a lot more complex than that, obviously. Anyway, in West Virginia, motorcyclists, my husband said the Seneca Falls area, I think is gorgeous. <laughs> I've only done really the Carolinas area of Appalachia, but I'm looking forward to visiting West Virginia someday.
1: The reason why I want to visit West Virginia is the <laughs> Hatfield and McCoy feud, because I'm kind of obsessed <laughs> by the
0: whole thing. You should do an episode on it. I know. Almost nothing about it, honest to God You should do an episode on it We'll be real So I want to go because I found out researching this That in Greenbrier, West Virginia There's this like enormous resort hotel It's got a really fascinating past But then underneath is this like enormous secret emergency bunker That got outed in like the 90s Like they had kept it secret for that long And now I want to go, I want to stay there And I want to visit the bunker. Hmm. Real bad. So let's get into this story. The only real warning I have, and it's a big one, though, is we're going to be talking a lot about spousal abuse, which is not uncommon in our genre. But still, I just I want to give everybody a heads up. Okay. now a lot of what I'm going to tell you should be taken with a pinch of arsenic. Because this is yet another case where it happened long enough ago that even things like birthdays of the people involved are plus or minus five years. And honestly, I'm getting better at not spending an hour trying to just figure out the exact date of birth because I keep doing it and doesn't matter. All right, so let's begin with the villain in our family story. Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe. Wait, what?
1: Is that his real name? <laughs> That's a villain name if I ever heard one.
0: Right? Yes. It's his real name. And it's terrible. So it's Erasmus Stribling trout, like the fish, and then Shue, S-H-U-E. So he was one of at least seven children born to his parents, Elizabeth and Jacob. Jacob was a blacksmith. And he was born in Mount Salon, Virginia, around 1861 or 1862. Not sure. So around the same time, That his father was in the Civil War. His dad was mustered into service from July 16, 1861, with Company D, 52nd Regiment, Virginia Infantry, as a private. A year and a day later, he was discharged by a surgeon with disability as the reason, but I couldn't find any more info on that. His service was also before West Virginia was a state, so he would have been fighting for the Confederacy against the U.S. All right, so back to Erasmus, and yes, that's his real name. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why they went with this name because his siblings were named Susan, James, Joseph... John, Maggie, like there are more of them, but you get my drift. So it's not that surprising that Erasmus Stribling Trout decided to go by the name of Edward instead.
1: Yeah, I can totally understand
0: that. What (laughs) happened
1: there? Did his parents troll him or did they just know that he has a bright future ahead of him and he needed the right (laughs) name to
0: go with it? (laughs) Who can say? I don't know. I even searched those genealogical records because I was like, that's gotta be just one maiden name after another, right? Like I bet that's his father's mother's maiden name and his mother's, mo- you know, and yeah. nope, not a family name. I couldn't find another Erasmus or a Stribling or a Trout. I have no idea. Maybe they couldn't think of any new names and they were just really fucking tired because it was exhausting back then and <laughs> settled on Erasmus Stribling, Trout shoe. So, I- yeah. So there are some st- funny names in this one, but his is the worst. So I did find some old court documents that said that in 1881, this is one of the newspaper ads, his family's home, including his father's blacksmith shop, they were sold off to settle debts. But I think they were able to pay off all those debts with the sale of the land in the blacksmith shop and build another home, a log cabin, probably these hand-hewn buildings were really popular. And he either grew up on Droop Mountain, the... Mountain or in Droop Mountain, the town? I'm not 100% sure. That can be confusing. Ask the Waltons. I know. So again, something that really nobody cares about. All right. So because he really clearly hated the name Erasmus, I'm going to go ahead and keep using it because as you'll soon agree, he was a real asshole and we're not going to do him any fucking favors. Oh, he was also very handsome. So imagine like Billy Zane's character in Titanic and like that kind of personality, but also he's a blacksmith. So he's not only really hot, but also muscular as hell because, you know... Working at that forge. So combine like, Gendry from Game of Thrones, body, but that's it. And then the rest of him is Billy Zane in Titanic. And that's (laughs) our Erasmus. So can you picture it? I've got some photos we'll post.
1: A handsome villain with a mysterious name. Where do you find those cases? (laughs) Mostly, I like
0: to do cocaine and think about it. So, Erasmus's first marriage was to a woman named, I think, Allie Esteline Cutlip. She was known as Esty, was her nickname, and she was born on September 8, 1867. They married in 1885 when she was 18 and he was in his early 20s. And not long after their marriage, he began to beat her up. And it was bad. There's an account that he once beat her up so badly that a group of local men in town got together, beat the shit out of him, and then threw him into an ice-covered river, like, Rasputin-style. But he survived. Rasputin style, and kept on hitting her. So she had a daughter in 1887, likely the only good thing to have come from her time with him. And then she lucked out because in 1889, he was sent to prison for stealing horses. And so while he was in prison, she divorced him, citing abuse as the reason, and got the hell out, which was great for her. And it does look like she remarried, found happiness, and ha- went on to have more children. So happy to report that. It wasn't long after he was released from prison that he met his next wife, Lucy Ann Tritt. She was born around 1870 in Greenbrier County, uh, near Alderson, West Virginia, to parents Isaac and Elizabeth. And I really wish I tried so hard to find some more information on her or a photograph or just anything. But all I can say is that she had at least three siblings and she was loved. On June 23rd, 1894, Lucy married Erasmus and they lived on or in Droop Mountain in Pocahontas County, West Virginia with his family. Eight months after they were married on February 11th, 1895, Lucy was dead. She was 24 years old, and the death was never investigated. In the papers, it just says she died suddenly. I couldn't find a death certificate. I read a couple of accounts on how she supposedly died. Erasmus said, of course, that she just had a bad fall and hit her head on a rock. Another account I read said that it was a terrible accident. He was fixing his chimney, and she was placing rocks in a basket that then he'd, he'd then like hoist up to keep repairing the chimney from the roof. And while doing this, a rock fell and hit her on the head, killing her. The locals, uh, you know, the folks who had tried to kill him for beating up his first wife, they were not pleased with any of this. So at this point, Erasmus fucks off over the mountain. And in the fall of 1896, he, he just packed everything up and he moves to Greenbrier. Now, I think that Droop Mountain and Greenbrier are not that far away from each other. I think they're only maybe about... 30 miles but that would be a lot longer and harder journey back then I could also be completely wrong about this so my apologies to our listeners again in the area once he relocated he tried again to go by the name Edward (laughs) and I think he did actually change his name and then everybody called him Trout he really tried though he tried he really he was trying to shake it so hard it just wasn't gonna happen so yeah so he's he's moved to Greenbrier and it's in early October of 1896 that Erasmus meets the very beautiful 23-year-old Elva Zona Heaster. It seems like she went by the name Zona, and uh, she was immediately taken with him. So let's talk a little bit about Zona's background. And again, we don't know as much as we'd like, but we do know more about her than his other wives. So Elva Zona Heaster was, and it's Elva, first name Elva, middle name Zona, Last name Heaster. I feel like I keep saying Elva Zona like it's one word. Uh so Elva was born in Greenbrier County, West Virginia in 1873. She grew up in a very close loving family on Sowell, Sewell S-E-W E L L. So I would say Sewell or Sewell Sewell, you think? Yeah. Okay. Someone's gonna write in and tell us. There's there's a big Sewell and a little Sewell, and I've seen both written. And I've also seen it just Sewell, so I'm not really sure, but they're they're in the general area of that mountain. It seems like her father, Jacob Hedges Heaster, who seems to have also gone by the name Hedges, because I think his dad was also Jacob. So Hedges Heaster, aren't there some great names in this? He's a farmer, and I know that her mother, Mary Jane Robinson Heaster, was a total badass. We'll get more on that later. So, apparently, in November 1895, at age 22, uh, Zona had had a child out of wedlock. I couldn't find any more information on that at all, but a lot of articles mention it to be fact- couldn't find out anything about the child, couldn't find out what happened to them, but I did speak with a friend with knowledge of the area at the time who said that a child out of wedlock would still have been, like, it still would have been a big deal, but just in not nearly as big of a deal as it would have been in, like, Virginia or Boston. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Not as big a deal. It also seems like this is around the time that Erasmus, who, again, like I said, is trying to be an Edward, but everyone's calling him Trout. He'd either opened a new blacksmith shop or gone to work with another blacksmith at the Crookshanks blacksmith shop. One of those things is true. Zona went with her family to the Forge, and that's where uh, she met him and was just immediately infatuated with this very tall, dark, and handsome stranger. Don't do it, Sona. Oh, girl, she did it. She then took another trip back to the shop and was just like, hey.
1: (laughs) Just randomly hanging out outside of the blacksmith. (laughs) Yes.
0: Literally, like, all the things you read are like, she then went back to the shop to make sure he knew she was interested, which maybe that's how you did things back then. Yeah. I actually support that. So... The feeling was mutual, and within a few weeks, on October 20th, 1896, Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe married Elva Zona Heister at the local church. And Zona's mother is not happy about this. She had bad vibes about this guy from the start, and I'm sure she doesn't love the fact that they've known each other for a couple of weeks, but she has no real say in the man, you know, who her daughter marries. Unfortunately, her fears are proven right when, after the marriage, her previously vivacious daughter, Zona, starts to look ill and tired, dark circles under her eyes, and she's become really clumsy, and she's got bruises all over herself to show for it. And her deeply concerned husband, Erasmus Trout, has her seen regularly by the doctor, who unsurprisingly can find no clear cause for her symptoms. But Erasmus Trout makes a really big show of summoning the doctor and expressing his concerns and his devotion. You know, so he's, he's very sneaky. And Mary Jane's dislike and distrust of her son-in-law is not made any better with time. Unfortunately, though, There wasn't going to be a lot of time because three months after Zona was married on January 23rd, 1897, I think before her parents had even visited them in the cabin that they share, Zona is found dead at the bottom of the stairs.
1: Oh, man. Let me guess. She slipped and hit her head on the stairs and then on a rock. (laughs) Yeah,
0: right? So, okay. Here's what seems to have happened, according to a few sources, especially the book Haunted West Virginia, Ghosts and Strange Phenomena of the Mountain State by Patty A. Wilson. There's also several other sources that You'll find linked as usual. So here's what seems to have happened. On the morning of the 22nd, the day before Zona's discovered, Erasmus goes to the house of an African-American woman who is known as Aunt Martha Jones. She lives nearby. And her son, who's either 11 or 12, his name is Anderson. And he's been hired from time to time to help Zona run some errands. So Erasmus Hsu goes to see Aunt Martha and he asks her to come by the next day to help Zona. She tells him that Anderson has promised to help the doctor all morning, so he can't go in the morning, but he can definitely come by tomorrow afternoon. Trout agrees, but he's really adamant that he is very worried about his wife and that Anderson really has to go to the house to check on her by early afternoon at the very latest. So... (laughs) Nothing unusual there. That's totally normal. So on the 23rd, young Anderson arrives. He knocks on the door. He gets no response. But he's a smart kid. He knows Zona. He knows that she's not been very well lately. And he's concerned. So he lets himself in in case she needs help. And this poor child has the great misfortune of finding Zona laying at the bottom of the stairs. And he can tell right away that there is no helping her, that she is dead. And so he does what any child would do. And he runs out of the house back to his mother. He He then runs to the blacksmith shop to inform Trout, and they rush home. Trout makes a big show of his grief, weeping and screaming and moaning, and sends the boy out again to fetch the doctor. He shatners. He shatners. Exactly. Yes. So, by the time the doctor arrives, Trout has carried Zona upstairs, changed her clothing into a very high-necked dress. He's cradling her head and sobbing uncontrollably with, like, over her head. So Dr. George W. Knapp, now he's the doctor who'd been caring for Zona for the last few months. He's here, but he can't really get that close because Erasmus is just all over her. He's like weeping and moaning. He's shatnering and it makes the doctor uncomfortable as men seeing other men cry. almost always does. Dr. Knapp is like, uh, he feels really bad. Obviously, the husband is just beside himself. And so he doesn't really examine her at all. And her cause of death is reported as, quote, everlasting faint, end quote, everlasting faint. But he later changed it to complications from pregnancy, assuming pregnancy was responsible for her illness, her clumsiness, and ultimately her death.
1: Um, but she never mentioned being pregnant or she'd likely known the signs since
0: she had a child previously. Right? And no, she told nobody that she was pregnant. So I think you're right. I don't think there's any chance she was pregnant. I also can't find any information on her first child. So I don't know if maybe that baby died in infancy, which would have been really common at the time. Because when she died, I was like, well, what happened to her kid? But you see that there was a child born and that's it. It's just all very sad. So her cause of death is just randomly attributed as complications from pregnancy. And if this sounds bizarre, let me just remember. Remind our listeners that when things like fast-moving cars and trains were much later invented, doctors thought that women couldn't travel in them, it would be unsafe because their uterus might just fly out of them at speed, killing them instantly. It's insane, and men wonder why we get so easily fed up with this kind of bullshit is still happening to abused women every day. Erasmus helps prepare the body for the wake and burial, and I'm honestly not certain how often men were a part of this. We know from our Victorian episode that preparing a body was woman work, but Erasmus, he was very attentive. So he placed her in the casket himself, constantly cradling her head, which looked a bit Floppy. So he folded a sheet and put it on one side of her head and then either folded a dress or got a pillow, depending on what you read, and put that on the other side of her head to keep her head straight. And then he tied a very large scarf around her neck. And when, when her mother and other people were like, that doesn't really go with her best dress, you know, that she's wearing for burial, he just started sobbing. And he's like, it was her favorite scarf. She would want it with her. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound suspicious at all.
1: Like, well, nothing to see her move along move along yeah
0: right so she was waked at her parents house on big sow mountain and her husband the loving erasmus trout was right at the head of the casket for the entirety of the wake until she was buried in the cemetery at sewell chapel methodist cemetery in meadow bluff that probably would have been it just another death of a young person except for one rather exceptional turn of events her ghost appeared to her mother, four nights in a row, and told her what had really happened. Embrace yourself for this shock. She didn't fall down the stairs. She was murdered. <gasps> what a shock. Who could have seen
1: that coming? No, but seriously, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that there was a ghost involved.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the vapors? Do you need to lie down before your uterus falls out? <laughs> I'm sure I'll recover. <laughs> but please tell me more about this alleged ghost with pleasure because this is sad and actually kind of wonderful so within a month of her beloved daughter's death mary jane was telling everyone about these strange happenings so first when she washed the white sheet that had been folded up in the coffin with zona it turned the water blood red and then left the sheet a discolored pink color and others came and witnessed this sheet as well
1: Wait, uh, that's the sheet that was placed on one side of her head. Yeah. They then took it out again and didn't bury it with her, so...
0: Yeah. Not wanting to waste a perfectly fine sheet, I guess. Waste not, want not. Sheets don't grow on trees, lady. (laughs) Especially back then. Yeah, true. (laughs) But then, more disturbingly, she said she had seen Zona's ghost not once. Not twice, but four times. But every time that Zona would appear, she'd give her just a little bit more information. Like, it seemed like the ghost was having a hard time fully manifesting or couldn't stay that long. And so it was like lots of little bits of information until she finally was able to disclose to her mother that Erasmus Trout had abused her and ultimately murdered her. She told her mother that Trout had been increasingly violent and that the night she died, he became enraged when she made a dinner that didn't include any meat and that he had snapped her neck at the first joint. To show her mother specifically what she meant by that, her daughter's ghost turned her head completely around and then vanished. This is ugh. Chills. How very
1: dare she. <laughs> Making dinner without Any meat for a tall, hardworking man? Yeah. I guess Sona's mother was pretty upset by this new information.
0: Yeah, it was honestly, that was all the proof that Mary Jane Heaster needed. And she soon began telling anyone who would listen that Trout had murdered her daughter. And worse, there were rumors that when he heard about this, his response was just like stone cold. And he was like, well, they'll never prove it.
1: He really does sound like a top-notch villain. Did
0: he twirl his mustache around while he said that? I bet he would have if he'd had one. No mustaches here. Maybe it's an occupational hazard if you're working with flames. I don't know. Mary Jane's description, though, was so compelling and upsetting that she got Dr. Knapp, who had been the doctor that, you know, examined her daughter and signed the death certificate, to agree that he might have been mistaken in his diagnosis because of the behavior of her husband. And that was enough to convince the local prosecutor, John Preston, to reopen the case.
1: That's nice, though, that you were like, hey, maybe we made a mistake. Let's check again. Absolutely.
0: 100%. 100%. Big respect to Dr. Knapp. And so thanks to Mary Jane's tenacity and Dr. Knapp's honesty, an exhumation was ordered and an inquest jury was assembled. And not surprisingly, Erasmus Trout was furious about the exhumation. Not happy. Fortunately, because she died in winter, the body of Zona was really pretty perfectly preserved for the autopsy. So on February 22nd, 1897, three medical doctors performed a new autopsy on Zona, and the new cause of death was deemed to be, quote, anoxia from manual strangulation compounded by a broken neck, end quote. Anoxia means lack of oxygen to the brain. Bruising in the shape of hands, like fingers, were noted on Zona's neck that had been, that had been hidden by her high collar. Her windpipe was crushed, ligaments torn, and her first and second cervical vertebrae were fractured. And when I say her first and second cervical vertebrae were fractured, what that means is her neck was broken. At the first joint, I'm just
1: baffled with the lack of an examination before. Worry like, oh, damn. I mean, she's wearing a high collar, so pff, there's no way we can examine her. But hey, her husband seems trustworthy enough. It's fine. It's
0: fine. It's going to yeah, be fine. It's, it's fine. It's no problems. Yeah, I think it's because she'd been treated by that doctor for a while. He hadn't ex- suspected abuse, right? Because it just seems like her husband had been calling on the doctor regularly to treat her and pretending like something was really wrong when really he was hitting her and that's what was wrong. So I think he just didn't suspect him. I thought he thought he was a really loving husband. And then he was just so overcome with grief and you remember he like kind of draped himself over her head and was crying so yeah but he does make good later so anyhow at the inquest Trout denies everything but he has no alibi so her death is ruled a homicide and he is charged with her murder we can be happy that they didn't blame the boy oh my god yes yes absolutely yes a young black boy in at this time literally anywhere in the United States at this time period Yes, I think that's something we can be tremendously grateful for. And it enrages me, enrages me that he deliberately set up a child... To find his wife's body. Mm. We hate this guy. All right. So while he's awaiting trial, of course, people started to talk. And now all of a sudden there's more information coming about his other marriages and how badly he had treated his first wife and how his second wife had died mysteriously. Which, you know, at first people genuinely thought was a terrible accident. But now... You know, it's all wild speculation, as was the cause of Zona's illness before death, right? All of a sudden, it's like, oh, maybe she wasn't clumsy. So Trout himself in jail in Lewisburg, apparently he said that eventually he always thought he'd have seven wives, ultimately. Don't know what that's all about changing them like his under no he's changing them more often than his underwear probably <laughs> i was gonna say more often than his underwear yeah Ugh. but yeah he's like he wasn't even remotely worried because he said they can't prove anything so great john preston he's the attorney prosecuting trout for murder and he knew that zona's mother's ghost story although it was incredibly compelling would never be considered proof in a court of law so he wasn't even going to mention it you know he was plenty of uh circumstantial evidence to convict the husband. But William Rucker, who was Trout Chew's attorney, did decide to bring it up when he cross-examined Mary Jane, that's Zona's mother. And he did this because he was trying to discredit her by having her tell her crazy ghost story. Like, ooh, look at this crazy mother. And it backfired Big time. Thanks to DyingWords.net and Gary Rogers. Uh, He's a retired homicide detective and forensic investigator who now does a blog, which I will post to in our sources, DyingWords.net. And he had information on the transcript of the trial. I'm going to link to it, uh, as I said. And Johanna, would you mind reading this transcript with me? You'll find the link in the messages I sent you before. Okay,
1: wait, just give me a second.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he says that, quote, this verbatim excerpt is from the transcript of Mary Jane Heaster's testimony. It's still on record in the West Virginia State Archives.
1: Who should I read? The Defense counsel. Yeah, you want to read Defense Counsel? Okay. I have heard that you had some dream or vision which led
0: to this post mortem examination. And I'm reading the part of Mary Jane Heaster, her mother. So. It was no dream She came back and told me That he was mad That she didn't have No meat cooked for supper But she said she had plenty And she said she had Butter and apple butter Apples And named over Two or three Different kind of jellies Pears and cherries And raspberry jelly And she says I had plenty And she says Don't you think That he was mad And just took down All my nice things And packed them away And just ruined them And she told me Where I could look down Back of Aunt Martha Jones's In the meadow In a rocky place That I could look in a cell behind some loose planks and see. It was a square log house and it was hewed up to the square and she said for me to look right at the right hand side of the door as you go in and at the right hand corner as you go in. Well, I saw the place just exactly as she told me, and I saw blood right where she told me, and she told me something about that meat every night she came, just as she did the first night. She came four times in four nights, but the second night she told me her neck was squeezed off at the first joint, and it was just as she told me.
1: Now, Mrs. Heaster... This sad affair was very particularly impressed upon your mind, and there was not a moment during your waking hours that you did not dwell upon it?
0: No, sir, and there is not yet either. And was
1: this not a dream founded upon your distressed condition of mind?
0: No, sir, it was no dream, for I was as wide awake as I ever was. Then, if not a dream or dreams, what do you call it? I prayed to the Lord that she might come back and tell me what happened, and I prayed that she might come herself and tell on him. Do you think that you actually saw her in flesh and blood? Yes, sir, I do. I told them the very dress that she was killed in, and when she went to leave me, she turned her head completely around and looked at me like she wanted me to know all about it. And the very next time she came back to me, she told me all about it. The first time she came, she seemed she did not want to tell me as much about it as she did afterwards. The last night she was there, she told me she did everything she could do, and I am satisfied that she did do all that too. Now, Mrs. Heaster...
1: Don't you know that these visions, as you term them or describe them, were nothing more or less than four dreams founded upon your distress?
0: No, I don't know it. The Lord sent her to me to tell it. I was the only friend that she knew she could tell and put any confidence in. I was the nearest one to her. He gave me a ring that he pretended she wanted me to have, but I don't know what dead woman he might have taken it off of. I wanted her own ring, and he would not let me have it. Mrs. Heaster, are you positively sure that these are not four dreams? Yes, sir, it was not a dream. I don't dream when I am wide awake, to be sure, and I know I saw her right there with me. Are you not considerably superstitious? No, sir, I am not. I was never that way before, and I am not now. Do you believe in the scriptures? Yes, sir. I have no reason not to believe it.
1: And do you believe the scriptures contain the words of God and his son? Yes, sir, I do. Don't you believe it? Now, I would like, if I could, to get you to say that these were four dreams and not four visions or appearances of your daughter in flesh and blood. I am not going to say that, for I am not going to lie. Then you insist that she actually appeared in flesh and blood to you upon four different occasions? Yes, sir. Did she not have any other conversation with you other than
0: upon the matter of her death? Yes, sir, some other little things, some things I have forgotten, and just a few words. I just wanted the particulars about her death, and I got them. When she came, did you touch her? Yes, sir. I got up on my elbows and reached out a little further, as I wanted to see if people came in their coffins. And I sat up and leaned on my elbow, and there was light in the house. It was not a lamplight. I wanted to see if there was a coffin, but there was not. She was just like she was when she left the world. It was just after I went to bed, and I wanted her to come and talk to me, and she did. This was before the inquest, and I told my neighbors. They said she was exactly as I told them she was. And that's it. So, he goes on to say, it's on record, the trial judge cautioned jurors about the reliability of circumstantial evidence, quote, there was no living witness to the crime charged against the defendant Chu, and the state rests its case for conviction wholly upon circumstances connecting the accused with the murder charged. So the connection of the accused with the crime depends entirely upon the strength of the circumstantial evidence introduced by the state. There is no middle ground for you the jury to take. The verdict inevitably and must be for murder, in the first degree, or for an acquittal.
1: And what happened?
0: Basically, everybody believed the ghost story.
1: Or maybe they knew he was awful, as did the mother, of
0: course, who did everything she could to get her daughter's murder locked up. Yep, that's totally valid, and... He did actually take the stand and testify on his own behalf, which was also a huge mistake. Apparently, he rambled a lot and just took up a lot of time, which jurors love just denying things with no proof and no alibi. Nobody liked him, and nobody <laughs> found him believable. like they just really hated him. and you're right. It's absolutely possible that her mother concocted this whole thing just to get, you know, justice for her daughter, which is a good plan if, if totally. you tell us what she did. Exactly. That's why I think she's a badass. But the thing that gets me is the bit about the broken first joint of her neck, right? Because it was. It's possible that she saw that her daughter's – I don't know how to say this without sounding awful, but like that her daughter's head was a bit floppy, you know, but like first joint to to go to the – Constable or the prosecutor, and say, You know, my daughter was, was, had her neck broken at the first joint. She told me this. I saw her and she told me this. And then they do the autopsy and that's where it's broken. It's so specifically right. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe she really saw her daughter's ghost. Maybe. Maybe. It's possible. So, yeah. After an hour and 10 minutes, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. They do make a note to say in the papers that they convicted on circumstantial evidence and not the ghost story. But regardless of that, uh, he was sentenced to life in prison after deliberation. So 10 of the 12 (laughs) voted for execution. But because it wasn't unanimous, he got life in prison. Again, West Virginian locals are not happy. I like these people. Although I don't condone this next bit. They formed a lynch mob. And so apparently this poor sheriff, Sheriff Nickel, he had to take this asshole, Erasmus, out into the woods and fucking hide him just to keep him safe from this mob of angry citizens. And then he had to go back to jail where he met up with this mob and convinced them all to lay down their weapons and go home. So yay, Sheriff Nickel. Uh, four men in that crowd were later indicted for an attempted lynching.
1: That's just like the opening scene of Deadwood.
0: Yes. Yes. I've got to get Paul to watch that. I haven't seen it since it was first out. It's so good. So good. So, right. So finally, Erasmus Trout was taken to the now infamous West Virginia State Prison in Moundsville, which was pretty new when he was taken there. It's teeny tiny little cold prison cells. I think they're prison cells. Don't quote me on this. I think they're, but I literally think they're like five by seven. Like tiny. And he died there miserably not long after about three years later on March 1st 1900. It looks like he died of the measles, uh, which he then got pneumonia, which is not uncommon when you have the measles and it killed him. Good. I know, right? (laughs) Yay. (laughs) And to this day, there's a marker. I think it's on Route 60. It was erected by the state of West Virginia and it says, interred in nearby cemetery is zona heaster shoe her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband edward they're being generous there it goes on to say autopsy on the exhumed body verified the apparitions account edward found guilty of murder was sentenced to the state prison only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer end quote We have to go take a picture by that sign, right? You just want to go there and scribble Erasmus
1: over Edward.
0: I do. I know. State of West Virginia. If we crowdsource it, could we please change it to Erasmus or Trout? Either would be okay. Or Stribble or what was his middle name? Yeah, Stribbling. Like Dribbling, but with an S-T before it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't deserve to be called Edward. He's a monster. Monster, monster. He's dead, no. I know. Good. (laughs) Good. He's the worst. Yeah. I think it's really fascinating, and it's one of those, I know that ghosts creep you out, but, like, how cool would it be if it was actually her ghost? I think probably it wasn't. I think probably her mother was very crafty, as you said, and got her justice. But just on the off chance, it's possible. I don't know. The whole first joint thing. It's a little spooky sorry, I'm a little high. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I just, I thought that was a really interesting story. It's super interesting. I liked it. Good, good. Oh, I'm glad. Good, 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 good. All right. Speaking of good, what was your something good this week? My something good this
1: week is that we officially started house hunting.
0: Yes. And
1: I already looked at one and it came already pretty close to what we're looking for, but it just, it was not it. No. But it's It's a super exciting new phase in our life, like, kind of, hey, we're adults. We're adulting. You're adulting. It's awesome. Plus, Annie gets to see a lot of Austrian real estate ads at the moment.
0: I love it. And their real estate ads are very different than the way they're laid out in the US. I think a lot of Europe is that way. So I go through all the pictures, and some of these places are huge. Like, that place you just looked at, that was too big. That was huge. It was huge. It was was great for the dogs, the yard. Well, the
1: house was the perfect size. The garden and the yard was the perfect size. It was really, it was huge. It was huge. It was, it was 1,700 square meters and the house was yeah. 120 square meters. But then it also had like a huge barn and all these separate buildings. And in total, 700 square meters were buildings. Yeah. It's too, that's too many buildings. No, it was fine. It was just too damp. It was too much of a fixer upper yeah, for us. Too much. And it was an uphill lot
0: yeah it wasn't a really good like our backyard we have a big backyard and it's it's great for dogs because it's just big and flat with like one small yeah. hill and then a wooded area and it's all fenced in so that's nice but you would struggle to your dogs wouldn't be able to run around them well they would but well they would they would love it but i mean what what
1: do i do i want to put in a huge pool i want to garden there
0: oh. and it was just really
1: steep uphill which is like, yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, no good. No good. But I'm loving the real estate ads. Keep them coming. It's (laughs) I enjoy it. I miss it. It took us two and a half years to find a house. But I love I'm fascinated by I don't know why I'm just I love houses. It's weird. I'm a weirdo. It's fine. So my something good is just a little story from the last time that we were in Appalachia. So as I said, we were visiting a good friend in North Carolina. So my husband actually has a bunch of friends that he's been friends with since junior high school, I think. And they're all girls except him. And so every once in a while, there's a Girls Plus Paul weekend somewhere. And now I'm included, which is great because I love them. They're all amazing. And I love all the stories they tell me about my husband when he was young. Grr. So we get together. And this time it was just four of us. And so we go out for breakfast at a really popular spot in North Carolina. And after a bit of a wait, we're finally seated and we order. And now I can't remember what Lori and Melissa had, but their orders were fine. That's what they had ordered and what they expected. I ordered a Belgian waffle, which was on the menu. And Paul ordered an omelette. And so the waiter leaves, and the waiter comes back. And he says, I'm really sorry, ma'am, but we don't have any Belgian waffles. And I was like, oh, that's all right. If you're out of waffles, I'll get French toast. And he was like, oh, no, we have regular waffles, just not the ones from Belgium. I was like well, that's fine then. I'll just have regular waffles. No problem. So he leaves and then he comes back a few minutes later and he says to Paul, sir, I'm really sorry, but I forgot to ask you which sides you wanted with your omelet. You can choose two. And so Paul's like, oh, I'll take toast. And the kid's like, oh no, it comes with toast. And then you just need to pick two sides. And we're like, oh, well, what are the sides? Now I'll remind you, it's like 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And so far he has an omelet and wheat toast ordered. And so now the guy starts to list sides. And he says. Says, well, there's rice pilaf, <laughs> mashed potatoes, baked potatoes. Oh, our banana pudding is really popular. And I'm like, look at your at the table. <laughs> How high am I? Are these breakfast sides? Like, what's even happening? And then he's like, we also have steamed broccoli, potatoes au gratin. And finally Paul Paul's just like, can I just get some bacon? And it's fine. So he goes to check. He got bacon. It was great. Oh, and I did get a Belgian waffle. It was delicious. So but then later, I had to look up banana pudding because he kept he was really trying to sell the banana pudding. And I would never heard of this. And apparently, it's like a traditional English trifle. Like it's layers of ladyfingers and bananas. And then I bet this place has like that layer of ground beef and onions, and then another layer of ladyfingers, and then peas, and then some sliced bananas. <laughs> I don't know. It just took me good. Meat <laughs>
1: good. Exactly. What's <Mustard> not love?
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was, yeah, it just killed us at the time. So I've still never had banana pudding. I actually hate, I love banana bread, but hate every other form banana comes in. It grosses me out. I don't know why. April was like that, my, my friend. But, um... Yeah, it was just, it was so strange. I think it was his first day. I'll just never forget, like, what are your other breakfast sides? Well, we've got corn on the cob, mashed potatoes. It was like, oh, shit. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So thanks so much for joining us again. Don't forget this is the uh last week, right, to yep. join the Facebook group. You can find it if you search uh Fresh Hell Murder Mr Mist- uh, Fresh Hell Murder will probably get you there. Make sure you don't accidentally end up in the group for moms. I mean, that's a great group, but it's not what you came for. Very different things. And all you'll find the pin post and just drop a meme or a or a gif, gif, gif whatever drop a something say hello and you could win a t-shirt yay t-shirt from our merch store oh yeah not not a random (laughs) t-shirt if you don't win you can still buy a t-shirt we don't mind or a hoodie or a, a mug oh i'm obsessed with our hoodies they're so the premium hoodies are super soft and comfortable like they're not very thick they're very thin but really soft and warm
1: You'll find the link on our webpage, thresholdpodcast.com, and on our social media. Join
0: Instagram, follow us on Twitter. We're doing it. You're doing it. I keep doing it wrong. Every so often, Johanna texts me and she says, did you just try to post on Instagram? And I'm just like, (laughs) oh no, I'm sorry. She always tags people that she didn't mean to tag. They're
1: like, why did you tag this very weird Arabian newspaper outlet? We don't even know what they're saying. Oh, I didn't mean to. (laughs)
0: no idea what's going on. I just have to not. I just have to. You're killing it with Twitter and Instagram. So I've started my personal Twitter account. When I just have really weird thoughts, when I'm high, I've been tweeting them. And then I'll go back and look at them to see what an idiot I am when I'm sober. That's been fun. And then Instagram, yeah, I still am not totally sure how that works. But (laughs) you're nailing it. I'm watching from the sidelines real proud. But yeah, come say hi. We'd love to see you. Tell your dogs we said hi. Yeah, tell them all we said hi. Give them scritches from us. And uh, if you yourself are going through any kind of hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye.